Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone, today I'm going to talk about the fairy tale known as Frau Hull or Mother Frost from Grimm's Fairy Tales. First, I'll give a brief background of the tale and a few notes about it. Then I'll read a version of the tale out loud. So this will be a version that I wrote after reading the Grimm's version myself, so it's more restated in my own words because I'm trying to avoid copyright issues. Then I'll talk about how a Christian artist could approach retelling this tale according to the truth and beauty of scripture. I'll focus on three images from the tale and how we can look to the Bible for clarity, for inspiration, and for layers of intricate meaning in each image. So these three will be two sisters, the well, and frost or snow. So for a background on the tale, I found this fairy tale in Grimm's collection under a few different names. Frau Hull would be the most German sounding name, but I'm also seeing translations and variants like Mother Hull, Mother Holly, Mother Hulda, Mother Frost, or Mother Snow. The University of Pittsburgh has an online version that compares the 1812 and 1857 versions of the, the tale and all of the tales. Uh, because the grooms did some editing in between, so I'll link that in the show notes. Brief note on the Frau Hull, or Mother Frost figure, in this tale. I didn't find anything very concrete, but I found some rather interesting sources that suggest that this could be a figure from Norse mythology. It may allude to the goddess Hulda, but also possibly the goddess Fricka, which is the wife of Odin, uh, maybe linked with the Scottish Caelic, and also probably, maybe, possibly with the Greek goddess Hestia. All of these figures have individual or overlapping associations with the home and hearth, fertility, womanhood, spinning and weaving, wild creatures, hunting, the Yule season, or the winter solstice. So make of that what you will, but I will let the fairy tale speak for itself. Brow Hole once upon a time, a woman lived with her two daughters. One daughter was beautiful and hardworking, while the other was ugly and lazy. The mother preferred the ugly and lazy daughter. She made the beautiful and hardworking daughters do all the work of the house, including spinning, making the beds, baking the bread, and tending to the garden. One day, the beautiful and hardworking daughter sat by a well, spinning until her fingers bled. She dropped the reel of the spindle into the well by accident. In distress, she ran home to her mother and told her what had happened. You careless girl, her mother scolded. Go and fetch the reel at once, or don't bother coming back home ever again. The girl returned to the well. Not knowing what else to do, she jumped in to retrieve the spindle. The girl awoke to find herself in a beautiful meadow filled with thousands of flowers. She walked until she came to an iron stove full of baking bread. Quick, 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 begged the loaves of bread. Take us out before we burn. The girl kindly removed the loaves of bread from the oven and continued on her way. She came to an apple tree with branches heavy with fruit. Quick, 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 shake us down for we are ripe, the apples begged her. The girl kindly shook the tree branches until the apples rained down and continued on her way. The girl came to a house and knocked at the door. An old woman opened it. 
The girl was frightened of the woman's large teeth and would have run away, but the woman spoke kindly to her. I am Frau Ho, she said. Work for me and do my household chores, and I will treat you well. Only make sure to shake my feather bed thoroughly in the mornings, for that is what sends snow to fall on the earth. The girl lived with Frau Hull for a year, shaking her feather bed to let it snow on the earth and doing the other household chores. She lived happily, for she was treated kindly and ate meat every day. After some time, however, she began to feel a deep sadness. She realized she was homesick for earth. Forgive me, but I long for my own people, she told Frau Hull. I must go back. Of course, my dear, said Frau Hull. It is well that you long to return to your people. I will take you back myself and reward you on the way. Frau Hull led the girl through a large gate. As the girl went through, a shower of gold fell upon her and stuck to her all over. That is your reward for your good service, said Frau Hull. She handed the girl the missing spindle reel and led her back to the meadow of beautiful flowers. The girl found herself climbing out of the well back on earth. The girl returned home and told her mother and sister all that had happened to her. The mother desired that her favorite daughter, the ugly and lazy one, should have the same reward of a shower of gold. She sent the ugly and lazy daughter to the well to undertake the same journey. On her mother's instructions, the ugly and lazy daughter sat by the well and spun until her fingers bled. Then she dropped the spindle's reel into the well and jumped in after it. The ugly and lazy girl awoke to find herself in a beautiful meadow filled with thousands of flowers. She walked until she came to an iron stove full of baking bread. Quick, 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 begged the loaves of bread. Take us out before we burn. Why should I get myself dirty for you, snapped the ugly and lazy girl, and continued on her way. She came to an apple tree with branches heavy with fruit. Quick, 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 shake us down for we are ripe, the apples begged her. No, one might fall on my head said the ugly and lazy girl, and continued on her way. The ugly and lazy girl came to the house and knocked at the door. The old woman opened it. The girl was not frightened of the woman's large teeth, for she had heard already of her kind heart. I am Frau Hull, said Frau Hull. Work for me and do my household chores, and I will treat you well. Only make sure to shake my feather bed thoroughly in the mornings, for that is what sends snow to fall on the earth. The girl lived with Frau Hull for almost a year. She shook the feather bed and did the other household chores at first, but grew lazier and lazier, until she sent barely any snow upon the earth and the house grew dirty from lack of care. Finally, she said to Mother Frost, or Frau Hull, I am homesick and wish to return to my people. Of course, said Frau Hull, I will take you back myself and give you what you deserve on the way. Frau Hull led the girl through a large gate. As the girl went through, a rain of black pitch fell upon her and stuck to her all over. That is your reward for your bad service, said Frau Hull. She handed the girl the missing spindle reel and led her back to the meadow of beautiful flowers. The girl found herself climbing out of the well back on earth. She returned to her home and was never able to wash off the black pitch as long as she lived. A few months ago, I went to a play version of Pride and Prejudice, and I found that the writing and staging of this production focused on the ridiculous and silly aspects of the novel, um, everything especially comical and, and especially hyperbolic. 
Um, it felt more like a farce. Mrs. Bennet said, oh, Mr. Bennet, and all of her other lines at the top of her voice. It must have been very fun, but probably pretty exhausting by the end of the night. And Mary Bennet, who's the book smart and socially unaware sister, was extra serious and extra comical for that. They gave her these big glasses. She wore dull, drab clothing. She coughed all the time, loudly and noticeably. And she recited her lines very slowly and very solemnly. Like, what are men compared to rocks and mountains? She would lurk in the blind spots of other characters on stage so that they'd turn around unexpectedly and say, oh, Mary. Um, and the audience laughed every time. So did I. Just kind of happy to join in the silliness. It wasn't my favorite way of staging that story, but because we have the book and there's so many good movie productions and others, it didn't ruin it for me. And honestly, Jane Austen does have some pretty ridiculous characters in there. But there was this really interesting moment towards the end. After the happy reunion of both couples, of you know, Lizzie and, and Jane and their, and their husbands-to-be, and everything is happy, the happy ending is, is all established, Mr. Bennet turns to Mary and he says, Well, Mary, when will you bring a young man home uh, for us to meet? And she just laughs, Oh, father! And then she takes his arm and they exit stage right together, and that's, that, that's it. They're, they're done for the play. And the audience, including me, who has laughed this entire time at everything, including at Mary, went, aww. And I could feel us thinking all together. Suddenly, kind of, it was, it was a lapse in, in the mood. It was a sudden, um, I want, not complete shift, the happy ending still carried, but this, this sudden breaking of, of the, um, yeah, of the comical mood that had been there. And we, we all were thinking, wait, why can't Mary have a happy ending? Why does she have to be the one we all mock and, and make fun of? While the other sisters are the ones who are worthy of respect. Even to watch Mary, as ridiculous and over-serious as she was, be loved and be cherished by someone would have given us such pleasure, even though, of course, that's not in the book. I think of this because I think... We feel this when we look at this story, this fairy tale of two sisters. One is good, beautiful, and hardworking, and one is bad, ugly, and lazy. And the good one has a happy ending, and the bad one has a sad ending. And that is the genre of a fairy tale. It's not a weakness. Fairy tales are just flat like that. They work in binaries. They're, they're black and white. And so it's not a criticism of the fairy tale to say that, but if you're an artist thinking about retelling the tale, you're going to have to figure out what to do with that binary. Are you going to keep the good and bad sister duo as it is, or are you going to somehow try to give them both happy endings? Is that okay? Does it violate the spirit of the fairy tale? And how are you going to make them more complex characters? So this podcast is about retelling fairy tales in the light of scripture, looking at scripture not only for truth, for ethics, but for beauty, for aesthetics. So I decided to look at scripture at one of the most famous narratives of two sisters, and this would be the story of Rachel and Leah from Genesis 29 through 31, and then there's more, but that's, that's the main meat of their story. In summary, Rachel and Leah are the daughters of Laban. And Leah has weak eyes, the older sister, but Rachel, the younger sister, is beautiful. Jacob, the main character of the story thus far, comes along and he falls in love with Rachel. And through a complicated part of the story I'm not going to cover thoroughly, 
their father, Laban, tricks Jacob into marrying first Leah, who he didn't want to marry, and then he marries Rachel, who he did want to marry. So we have the binary there, the, the duo of the beautiful sister and the not beautiful sister, the beautiful and beloved sister, and the not beautiful and not loved sister. But we do not get that perfect binary of good and bad here. It's more complicated. So I'm going to read the end of Genesis 29 and then some of chapter 30. And the whole thing is worth reading, but it's, that's kind of a lot to read on one podcast. But I want to look at this because I think we get a really interesting view of Rachel and Leah's hearts. So this is Genesis 29, starting with verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So I'm going to skip the beginning of chapter 30 here. Again, this is all very worth reading, but uh, this is a shorter podcast episode. So in summary, Rachel is barren. She gives her servant Bilhah to Jacob to bear children on her behalf. She does. Then Leah gives her maidservant Zilpah to Jacob to bear children on her behalf. But then Leah has some more children. So I've just skipped uh, six or so children. But this is um, down in chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. During this long passage, this tale of, of childbearing and marriage, we see a wrestling between the sisters. And it always strikes me, neither had everything they wanted. Leah had children, and yet... She never had Jacob's love, not in the way that Rachel did. And Rachel was beautiful and loved, but for a long time, no children. So they're, they were both unhappy and they were both struggling with each other and pulling their maidservants into that struggle. And we see God as judge and also much more than judge because he promised Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, in Genesis 17 to watch over Abraham's offspring. He had promised to make Abraham exceedingly fruitful, to make him into nations, and that kings would come from him. And he promised an everlasting covenant. So this is messy and it's complicated and sad. And yet God is watching over all of this. He is glorifying himself in it. And he is revealing his character. He chooses to open Leah's womb at first because she's not loved. It's so gracious. And then after a long time, after years, there, there are many children born, or several at least, uh, I would have stopped expecting it. He opens Rachel's womb too. So she actually does have sons uh, of her own body, as well as children born uh, through Bilhah. A few months ago, my pastor preached on this passage, and he pointed out, look at the, the heart change that we can track according to the way Leah and Rachel name their children. For her first three sons, Leah is hoping that Jacob will love her uh, because she has borne him these children. 
But with the fourth son, we see something that sounds a bit different. She names him Judah, and she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And my pastor talked about how beautiful that is because it's it's not perfect. You know, she, she still struggles uh, with her sister and the rest of the passage. But if she is turning to God in her disappointment, that is the right thing to do. That is the thing we should all do because God loves us unconditionally and he can satisfy even a loving husband cannot satisfy the way he can. Unfortunately, Rachel's names for the children that Bilhah bears on her behalf and her own are steadily competitive. Judgment and wrestling, uh, may God grant me another son. So what does this have to do with the Frau Hole or Mother Frost tale and the two sisters? I can think of one way that you can look to scripture for inspiration as you're trying to decide how to portray, how to craft the characters of these two sisters. What is the desire of each sister's heart in your story because I think this passage shows that Leah's heart is bent on her husband's love at first but she she learns to receive the blessing of God and God's love and to yearn for God which we all should because he is he is the one who will satisfy Rachel seems pretty focused on having more children I, I couldn't help but draw on some of the words of Jesus in Matthew in Matthew 6 21 for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and also Matthew 12, 34b, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what is the desire of each sister's heart? And you can get really interesting here. You can even get very, very specific, like a really concrete desire for a specific uh, thing. Maybe more, it may, may make it easier for you to craft the whole character of each sister. But if the two sisters' hearts are pointed in different directions, if one is pointed in a generally good direction, a God-honoring direction, such as compassion, or a job well done, um, loving others, self-sacrifice, and the other sister's heart is pointed more in a worldly or fleshly direction, like beauty, fame, power, or a selfish kind of love, you can keep the binary of good sister, bad sister, but you can still make them fascinatingly complex and flawed characters. At the same time, to, to create a good story, you, you need to be retelling at least one part of the great story, the story of the gospel. And the gospel has redemption in it, it has grace, because God is so loving and gracious towards even selfish and, and evil people. And it doesn't mean that there's not righteous judgment and justice. The gospel combines mercy and, and justice. So if you find a way to do it, I think you can definitely give both sisters a happy ending and you can be really interesting there, but I would do it well or not at all. I would, I would not make it seem like a cheap grace that ignores sin because that's not true to the gospel. There needs to be some sacrifice, but I, I would not be afraid to give both sisters a happy ending because the gospel has that, that means for grace. the well. So wells in scripture. How are you going to handle the well in your fairy tale retelling? And this is a huge topic. So I'll name some relevant passages. I'll run through some things. Um, and if you're familiar with scripture, you, you'll, you'll see connections even that I'm not explicitly naming. But I'm going to go over a couple of passages from Genesis and then the Gospel of John. So Genesis 16 and 21, the angel of the Lord visits a particular servant girl, Hagar, 
whose uh, both times lost or exiled in the wilderness. The first time she's been abused and she's run away. The second time she's been kicked out of Abraham's camp because she has a child, Ishmael, the child of man's scheming, not the child of promise. And now Ishmael is considered a liability to the chosen son, Isaac. So both times she's lost in the wilderness and both times God comes to her, the angel of the Lord calls to her and gives her water, a spring or a well. He also gives her a promise. And even though she's outside of the Abrahamic covenant, he promises to multiply and bless Ishmael. Um, And it's so beautiful. It's so gracious because it's not strictly necessary in salvation history for this to happen. It's, It's the overflow of God's goodness. I love the name of the well in the first passage in Genesis 16. Hagar names God. She says, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. And the well is called Bir Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. Just her recognizing that she she was cast out and exiled and unwanted, and God still came and rescued her. So just that really abundant and, and um, sweet mercy that God has for hurting people. Going to the New Testament, in John 4, the Lord Jesus meets a woman in the town of Sychar in Samaria. At this time in history, Samaritans have no dealings with Jews. They're enemies. They have important doctrinal differences, and there's a lot of hostility there. This is also not only a woman. You don't speak to women in public if you're a man. And she's also a sinful woman. So three strikes, three reasons why an ordinary Jewish man would not speak to this woman. And yet Jesus the Messiah does. And they meet at a well that was dug by Jacob, who we mentioned before, and that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph, that that son of Rachel. The Lord Jesus explains to this woman throughout their conversation, which is, of course, worth reading in full, um, about living water. He says, and this is John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A few chapters ahead in John 7, the Lord Jesus goes up to the Feast of Booths at Jerusalem. So this is John 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. From all these passages, I'm seeing well imagery in scripture associated with several things, with God's loving provision to outcasts and exiles like Hagar, Samaritan women, and other sinners like me. His incredible generosity, his infinite abundance, uh, his sheer goodness, which is as sweet as water to the thirsty, Christ as a source and giver of eternal life, and the gift of the Holy Spirit for believers, which draws in a whole nother set of images, comfort, counsel, assurance, intercession, and much, much more. There's also more here when you look back at the fairy tale and the fact that both sisters have to go down into the well, and then they end up in some kind of sky realm or paradise from which the snow falls. So falling down into a pit or down into the earth is often an analogy for death. So think of Joseph, who's tossed into an empty cistern in Genesis 37, 
and then again into prison in Genesis 39. But both times he rises again to greater prominence. The Lord Jesus descended into the grave in death only to be resurrected. So the fairy tale doesn't make sense geographically, falling down into a well, ending up in the sky. Uh, spiritually, that makes perfect sense. That's exactly how it works. You fall down into death and then are raised up to new life. So what do you do with the well, considering all of this, all of this imagery of grace and abundance and provision when you're crafting a fairy tale retelling? I want to be careful here because I'm talking primarily to fellow artists and your own imagination should be at work here, incarnating this tale in ways that I could not dream of. So I, I definitely can't tell you what to do. Um, as you develop your world and your characters, uh, you'll use concrete details in whatever medium you're working in and explore the unfolding desires and actions of each person in your story and your own well will come to life through that. But I will argue one thing, whatever the well is in your retelling, however you describe it, however it works, whatever story you might associate with it, it's an avenue of transformation and rebirth. So the character who goes through it either needs to become a new person, begin to become a new person, or if they stay the same, like the bad sister in the original fairy tale, that means they failed the test. So whatever you do with it, think rebirth and renewal. Third and final image, and I'm awkwardly combining Frost and Snow as an image itself, and also Frau Hull or Mother Frost, that, that figure. In the paradise or whatever sky realm that the sisters get to, this kindly maternal figure, Frau Hull, Mother Frost, is the one who sends snow on the earth by shaking out her feather bed. And I just love that because it's told so simply and plainly and matter-of-factly, like, oh, that's how snow falls. She just shakes out her feather bed. Oh, all right. And it, it makes the magic of snowfall, this meteorological phenomenon, a peaceful domestic chore. And it didn't have to be that way. Think about other mythology. Um, it could have been something violent, like Zeus or Thor hurling down lightning bolts. But no, it's just, it's just a, a matter of good housekeeping. This mythical explanation for snow makes sense in other ways, too. Because snowflakes can sometimes look feather-like. I, re I really like those ones. And snow blankets the earth. It keeps it warm. It's an insulator. In contrast, frost, which is also very beautiful, love that as well, can kill sometimes. Just this last end of winter, it, it, uh, it killed the fragile cherry blossoms um, around where I live, which was very sad. So both frost and snow are associated with beauty, with cold in the winter season, but in that way, they are opposites. Looking to scripture, frost and snow have layers of meaning. Fundamentally, they're heaven sent. They're divine messengers and divine agents. Exodus 16, 14. Manna, the bread God sent from heaven, is left after the dew had gone up and is described as a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. I just think that's, that's just so lovely and, and interesting. So great beauty and also provision for Israel in the wilderness because they did not have much else to eat. In Job 38, 28 through 29, uh, we get a really exquisite poetic image of ice and frost. This is the voice of God who speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. After Job's three unhelpful and uncomforting friends and a fourth speaker, Elihu, have already had their say. So among other things, the Lord God says, How's the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? 
I find it curious that this set of rhetorical question uses parental imagery in two ways. Paternal for two lines, the father for the rain who begets the dew, and then it switches to maternal, a womb for ice and giving birth to the frost of heaven. This entire passage describes God's power and provision as the Lord of creation, because this is the God who laid the foundation of the earth, shut in the sea, commanded the morning, reserved the storehouses of snow and hail for battle. This is God exerting absolute power over the earth and exercising absolute love in caring for it as creator and sustainer and nurturer. Psalm 147, this is a song of praise that also glorifies God's mercy and might and his particular love for Israel. So I'll read verses 15 through 17. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? Another Psalm, Psalm 78. This describes the judgment of God for disobedience. And this part of the Psalm is talking about the plagues of Egypt. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. That's verse 47. There's just really interesting, these images of wonder and beauty and gifts of God, that frost and snow, among other things like manna, are sent by God himself. Blessings, um, warm, protective snow. But at the same time, they can also be sent as curses. They, they blight the crops of the wicked. They are provision. They are judgment. They are gift. They are punishment. So to come back to the fairy tale with all of that in mind, provision and judgment, gift and punishment, wonder, beauty, power. Frau Hull, or Mother Frost, is portrayed as a kindly and maternal figure. This is someone with goodness and generosity and the power to bless and curse. In an interesting way, she reminds me of the personification of wisdom, Lady Wisdom, in Proverbs. And she gives both girls an equal chance, but she sends one home with gold and the other with black pitch based on their behavior. I also noticed the verbs used throughout this story are, are weather-related. It's a shower of apples that come down, and it's a rain of gold or black pitch. In retelling this fairy tale, you have the opportunity to explore the mystery of snow and then what Samuel Taylor Coleridge called the secret ministry of frost as a double-edged sword, as a blessing and as a curse, maybe sometimes at the same time. As I study these three images, um, and again, this is me being a little more literary analyst than, than storyteller, than artist, but it's interesting. As I looked at them, um, the two sisters, the well and frost and snow, I found these thematic connections, which I, I, I just wanted to share as well. I'm seeing the thread of motherhood and fertility, um, especially as the fairy tale has no male characters. In the 1857 edition, there's this really annoying rooster who's crowing all the time and I didn't like him so I left him out but he's the only male character. I, I looked at Rachel and Leah and they're competing as mothers. Jacob met Rachel by a well and then he gave a well to his son Joseph which is the same well that the Samaritan woman who's descended from them went to. And Frost and Snow in the Job passage I quoted chapter 38 are metaphorically linked with fatherhood and motherhood. So it's just really interesting that that all came together, this image of motherhood or parenthood and fertility. I also see a second thread, work and labor, especially a woman's work, um, like spinning and baking and picking apples and shaking out beds. Both sisters are tested and revealed by their work ethic. And again, to mention, it's shaking out a feather bed that sends snow on the earth. 
A third thread I'm seeing is the thread of grace and God's incredible grace to Rachel and Leah in the act of childbearing. The well is a symbol of abundant grace for Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth and God's grace in taking care of his creation as he sends rain and snow and frost and ice. So all of that, what do you do with Frau Hull and the frost and snow of this fairy tale when you're creating a retelling? I really see this as a world building question. How are you going to shape a world in which snow comes from a shaken feather bed? What other things are going on here? What other figures might there be besides Frau Hull? And what is at stake? What is, what is going wrong? Because of course, when you have any kind of story or narrative, something has to be going wrong. But as you do that, I would look at the possibilities you get when frost and snow are, as I said, a double-edged sword, a blessing and a curse. That's pretty vague what I just said. So I want to give you some examples of what I'm thinking of that, that might be helpful, um, that might inspire you. Look at the North Wind in George MacDonald's book, At the Back of the North Wind. This is a beautiful and mysterious and powerful figure. And she's good. She's absolutely good. She's she's never a villain. She doesn't, she's not bipolar. She doesn't have a split personality. And yet she brings both comfort and calamity. She's good to Diamond, the main character. She does other good work in the world. And yet at one really fascinating and, and kind of heartbreaking point, she sinks a ship. But it's not as a villain. Again, she's a good character. So this this image of someone or something that can both bless and curse. I also looked at how different authors in the fantasy context have treated frost and snow. Uh, this was really fun. So as everyone can probably guess, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, snow and the white witch and her winter are figures of death and imprisonment and sterility and false power. So the victory of that book is the coming of spring and the coming of Aslan. But in the 2005 film Nanny McPhee, starring Emma Thompson, snow in August, not to spoil it too much, but to, to give you that idea, snow in August becomes the fulfillment of a prophecy. It's this cooling and healing refreshment that announces and celebrates the true bride as she comes with her purity and her goodness. So in summary, I would go deep into your world of frost and snow. The physical and the spiritual realities have fun with it. And be willing to see them as gift and judgment, as common grace and special grace. But as you do that, I would also think about that truth from scripture, that the hand that sends frost and snow, the blessing and the curse, is the hand of divine love and divine wisdom. This is the hand of the Father God himself. So those are a few thoughts on Frau Hull or Mother Frost. How to honor scripture as you work with these images of two sisters, the well and frost and snow in a fairy tale retelling. Join me next time to talk more about retelling fairy tales according to the truth and beauty of the Bible.